We are live. Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under Melbourne, Australia. Big thank you for joining me once again. Whilst you're here, don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe to the uh, to whatever platform you're on, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, they're probably my three favourites. Uh, give us a subscribe so you can never miss out on the latest episodes. They come out every week, uh, sometimes have a bit of a break during January, but otherwise we'll be coming with new episodes. And what an episode we have for you this week. Uh, if you're into setting up your planes so they fly the best that they possibly can, then stay tuned because we've got Peter Goldsmith joining us once again on the Flat Out RC podcast. So that will be coming up very shortly. But before we get to that, let's take a look at what's been on my mind. Well, not much has been on my mind lately. Uh, still sort of in restricted access to flying fields. What was interesting is that my local field, even though they could open and with sort of certain restrictions, decided not to. Uh, and basically the reason was they don't trust the members because I don't think they've been abiding by all the uh, the COVID regulations. So, um, oh, well, that's their choice uh, and I'll just have to stick to that. What's interesting is the club that I'm a member of is a very large club. So a lot of people say, oh, but this club's open and that club's open. But uh, when you've got 170 members at a club versus, say, 40 uh the decisions that you make are probably a little bit more uh, need to be thought out a bit more because you know currently I think the, the, as I speak the regulations about ten people at the field here in Victoria, and uh, when you've got one hundred and seventy members, it's not hard to get, you know it's pretty easy to get 10, 10 members turn up and uh, that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, that is the case. The weather hasn't been that great. It's been flyable this weekend. Uh, that I'm, you know, as I talk and uh, but uh, yep. Not much happening out in the flying scene. Uh, but I did notice that Horizon Hobby got another new product out. Uh, it's a foamy jet, um, a Viper jet. Now, they had a 70 mil EDF Viper jet, which I have got one for review and still own it. And it flies really, really well. And of course, you know, anybody that's been listening to this podcast knows I'm a big fan of Viper jets. Well, basically, they've just built a bigger version. It, to me, it's just that's it. That's the only difference. 90 millimeter fan, uh, bigger wingspan, uh, but pretty much the same kind of thing. I reckon it's capable of top speeds up to 120 miles per hour. So that's what, over 200 kilometers, I think it is. Uh, 12 blade, 90 mil fan, um, 6S compatible, uh, high power 6S compatible uh, motor, 130 amp ESC. You can get it in bind and fly because it is coming from Horizon Hoppy. So bind and fly with Spectrum transmitter, or uh, without the without the receiver, of course. Um, what else can I say about it that will excite you? Bigger flies better, they say. Yeah, that's what they're claiming now. Six S battery from four thousand to seven thousand, uh, or up to two six S thirty two hundred five thousand milliamp hour packs in parallel. Hmm. So you can uh, looks like it can handle a little bit of a bigger bigger battery. Uh, my one was pretty tight, and I've got I think a four thousand two hundred milliamp hour six S pack, so you a bit more space, so you can get a bit longer flight time. Um, it comes with the usual safe features, which I'm not a big big fan of. And I think if you know how to fly, you don't really need them. 
Retracts look really good. Uh, look a bit more solid than the um, than the smaller version. A lot more solid uh, trailing links. Uh, so I got bumps. Uh, that's a nice feature because people did complain about the first version that the undercarriage was a bit weak. Oh, I haven't had a problem. It's not totally sturdy. You know, it's got a bit of slop in it, but I haven't had an issue with the uh, with the retracts. Mine's been really good. What I find with these Viper jets, um, they do have flaps. You drop them down, and they really really slow down. Like it's not a hard jet to fly. Uh, at all. So if you're into EDFs and you like Viper jets, well, there's a bigger one. And bigger does fly better. So nice little plane, that. So keep an eye out for that. The uh, E-Flight Viper 90mm EDF jet. As far as other product news, not much coming out from any of the major brands. Um, it looks like stock supply is still an issue. Uh you know, I, I log into some of these websites and have a look and see what stock they've got, and it, it seems to be pretty, pretty thin on the ground. I wonder, you know, are you still in a COVID frenzy and buying model airplanes? You know, down here in Australia, we're coming into the winter period, which is, you know, especially well, it depends where you're located, I suppose, in Australia. But down where I am in Victoria, it gets pretty cold and and wet. You know, we've had a week full of rain, and the ground is not. Totally dried. A lot of clubs. Some are some are underground, underwater. Actually, um, down at Sale, they had some flooding at their field, which I rate as the best grass strip that I've ever seen. Their grass is phenomenal. There, just jump onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel and look for Sale S A L E, and you'll see uh, uh, a video that I've done there. Maybe a couple of videos that I've done down there um, on their event, and you'll see the grass and me lying on the ground admiring the grass. Hopefully that field bounces back. The Lilydale Club out in the Yarra Valley heard that was underwater as well, so hopefully they're okay and we'll get up and running shortly. My field where I fly generally floods, uh, you know, every few years if there's a big, big downpour uh, and the, the, the creek next to the field overflows, then the field's doomed and, and gets, you know, underwater. But it's been okay. It's been okay. It's just part and parcel of being an aero modeler where we're, we're subjected to the elements uh, and uh, the forecast is not looking great for flying over the next week. It's still a bit cold and wet, but hey, it's winter, so time to get into those uh, those projects. What's interesting is uh, I did notice there was a business called Laser Cut Kits Australia that announced that they were going to shut shop. And I think ever since uh, they announced that, there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork to try to grab themselves a kit uh, before they do. Even I had a look and thought, oh, should I buy something? For the future, and I mean a long way in the future, and I thought, nah, got nowhere to store it. I'll just stick with what I've got. But uh, I do want to build. I've got a, I've got a model that I want to put together an ARF, a three D hobby shop seventy five inch extra. That's basically a thirty cc aerobatic plane that I'm going to make as an electric model, my first bigger electric model. And uh, I should have should have started that, but I don't have it at my house. It's at another house. I can't go and get it because of the damn restrictions. Anyway, by the end of this week, I'll have my first Pfizer jab uh, getting vaccinated. So uh, if the dreaded lurgy heads my way, I, my body will fend it off. Anyway, let's just keep on moving. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, uh, you know that I've been trying to introduce this year some sort of specialised sort of themes, tutorials kind of thing, calling in some experts. And we've got another one of those episodes coming up, uh, one of these one of the interviews and guests, and that guest is Peter Goldsmith. And Peter Goldsmith is a guy that 
many of us know. Uh, he's been in the hobby for a long period of time, uh, both here in Australia and now resides in the US and has for many, many years. Uh, he basically became you know, the marketing head at uh, Horizon Hobby, but now he's he's retired uh, from work, but still busy playing with cars and uh, you know, model airplanes, of course, gliders and jets and scale warbirds, you name it. Peter's an expert at it. And so Peter, uh, many, many years ago when he was competing in aerobatics, both pattern, freestyle, things like that, uh, he developed a, a trimming chart. And he wrote some articles in some magazines about how to trim your model plane and the process in which to do that. And I've always you know, admired that chart and thought, gee, if you really want your planes to fly well, and especially aerobatic planes, that kind of thing, then you've got to follow this trimming chart um, because there is a process uh, that, that Peter promotes on how to trim a plane effectively. So that's what we're talking about today with Peter Goldsmith. Uh, he's just going to tell us about what he's up to and then a bit about how to trim your plane more effectively. So over to my chat with Peter Goldsmith. Well, many of you know that uh, on this podcast, we've been trying to get some experts in their field to join us to talk about specific aspects of aero modeling. And today I have the pleasure of having the one and only Peter Goldsmith joining us to talk about trimming. Peter, thanks for joining me once again on the Flat Out RC podcast. Hey, Andrew. How you doing, man? Well, look, I'm doing well. Uh, as I record this, we're having a mini lockdown in uh, in Victoria, and uh, we had a bit of a chat about that. But uh, we want to focus on the aero modelling today. But before we do that, what have you been up to? Oh man, <laughs> well, I've been building. We've just come out of our winter season, so I've been building. Uh, actually, Ali and I have been building two uh, nearly third scale peak forties, um, and that's been a fun project. Every Every season, every winter season, Ali and I try and do a build together. Just it's a learning opportunity for Ali and we get to hang out a little bit. Kind of makes the winter go a little bit quicker and just catch up on what's going on the horizon. And it's a fun time. We really enjoy doing that. So I've been doing that. Um, I got the delivery. Uh, my Cobra's finally finished and that got shipped out. And man, that is... <laughs> It's really hard to think about aeroplanes right now. I've <laughs> I know. Well, this Cobra car that you've got, I keep on seeing it on Facebook and it looks immaculate. How does it drive? Well, you, you know, it's been a long time since I've had a performance car and, and what I thought was a performance car. This thing is just insane powerful. And in actual fact, I just um, I took it to the dyno about 10 days ago now and um, the horsepower was probably nearly 80 horsepower more than I thought. And um, I, I got it back from the dyno and I pulled five degrees out of it because it was just, just too crazy. Yeah, so sometimes I've seen a lot of those Cobras at different events and some of them just have a lot of trouble getting the power to the ground. They're, they're a bit tail happy. Is that the case yeah, with yours I, or is it drivable? No, well, I, I spent, um, you know, I did a lot of research. I've got, I've got a lot of hookups in the motor racing scene and, and uh, I put uh, 331 rear gear, if you're familiar with what that means. So it's pretty tall gear. And um, I'm using the truck motor, so it's very torquey. And it'll spin, it'll spin all the way to third gear, but it's a lot harder to get the wheels to spin uh, than if you're running like a 410 gear. So it's pretty good under acceleration. You're going to spin every time if you take up in first, but if you kind of roll into it, it's not too bad. You just got to be really, really respectful of it. I've got a lot of uh, front caster to kind of keep it pointing straight, 
a lot of re camber on the rear wheel. I've pretty much set it up for, for the track, so it's really stable on the street. But, you know, you don't drive it in the wet, or if you do, you be very, very careful. Yeah, yeah, no way. <laughs> but it's a fun car, you know. I mean, someone with more experience than me driving that sort of car would just love it. But yeah. uh, I need to get it out on the track days and just find where the edges are, you know. Yeah, it's the way to do it. Now, that, that plane that you built in the P40, was that, was that a kit or was it scratch build? Uh, kind of both. Uh, there's a guy in uh, in the U.S. called Vic RC, and he did the fuselages. That's a fiberglass fuselage. And then I just made my own uh, tail group and wings for it just because I like to do that. And I, there were some things I wanted to try. I wanted to, you know, do a slightly different wing structure and, and try and pull some weight out of it. So we're pretty happy with how it's progressing. Mine's Mine's painted and Ali's is, uh, still needs paint, but I'm just kind of waiting for him to get a break in his workload so he can get back on it. Yeah. What, what motor are you putting in that? It has a uh, four-cylinder DLE triple two. Oh, okay. So, so yeah, good one. Yeah, it's got uh, pipes. And one of the – we, we kind of map out what we want to do with the bill before we start. One of the things Ali really wanted and I agreed was – you know, all these warbirds are really noisy. We're like, let's build a super quiet one. So mm. it's actually got four, four tune pipes. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it's got a inverted uh, uh, pressure cow cooling system. It's pretty trick, actually. It kind of put a lot of thought into it. Got some aero help from my friends, and uh, we think it'll be really good. Excellent. That sounds awesome. Uh, now, the purpose of me having you on this podcast is because you developed a method of trimming an aeroplane. You know, uh, if anybody doesn't know, Peter was a, a big time in the aerobatics uh, competitive scene on a world scale. And you you learned a lot and you developed a, 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 a way of trimming an aircraft, which has really been adopted worldwide, especially amongst pattern flyers and iMac flyers. Uh, that when I re when I type into Google Peter Goldsmith trimming chart, there are websites all over the world that have a document about your your philosophy. So I thought I'd go straight to the man, and <laughs> we're going to talk about trimming models, which is something that you know all of us need to do really uh, when when you know whether you're flying a scale plane, a glider, or or aerobatics, especially with aerobatics and, and competitive aerobatics. So. This whole concept of, of trimming and, and your philosophy on it, where did it come about? Well, <clears throat> when, when I was younger, <laughs> um, you know, when you, you have mad skills. You know, your hand-eye hand coordination is really good. Your brain's really sharp. Um, all those things sort of slow down a little bit when you're older. So, you know, I just put up with stuff. I just, you know, if the wing dropped or it pulled off to the right, or you, I was just so quick on the sticks, I could just straighten it out. Well, what I realized was if if we've all got the same skills, and in F3A, there's so little difference between, especially at a world, world, world championships level, um, top 20 pilots, there's just no difference in the skill level. They're all very, very, very close. So what do you got to do to kind of jump ahead? Well, you reduce your workload. If you've got a less workload, you're not working as hard, you've got more time to focus on maneuver quality. Um, you've done a little bit of motor racing, you know, the best driver in the world is going to fight to drive a badly set up car. And you might come along and beat the best driver in the world just because your car's set up better. You know, so it's the same deal. You, the whole idea of trimming a model, whether it be a glider, a scaler, a plane, 
aerobatic airplane, IMAC airplane, a jet. You know, if you can reduce your workload so the aircraft's predictable, it goes where you say, there's no kind of funkiness going on, you're going to have a more enjoyable flight. And you, you just, you, your workload's less, you know, so you're not going to get task overloaded if something goes wrong. Have you ever had a plane that you didn't need to trim? Never. Yeah, that's what I think. I think some people think, oh, I bought a really good airframe, you know, it should fly straight, but uh, I don't think that. Well, you exists. know, tr trimming trimming is not, you know, getting all the controls neutral. I mean, that's that's mechanically important. But trimming is all the dynamic forces that are going on, right thrust, you know, wing weight, you know, CG, um, all these things are variables, you know, and you can build two of the same model. I've had two of the same model, like, like as accurately as I could replicate two the same, and they flew different. They felt different. You know, it's just, it's just some weird, weird stuff goes on with aerodynamics, and you just got to kind of dial all that in. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's just start. What I'm I'm referring to in front of me, which nobody can see, is an article that I think was published in a magazine, um, posted courtesy of Peter Goldsmith and Model Aviation, approved by Rob Rod Kurek, and I don't know when this was published, but. I'm going to go through this article as a sort of a guide to keep us on track, Peter. And and the first thing that you wrote about was servo and control setup. And you're referring to, you know, the difference between 3D trims and precision trims um, and the differences. What's that? What, what are your tips when it comes to servo and control setup? Well, with, with any servo, with any modern RC equipment, um, most of them are 248 milliseconds resolution. So the servo travels its full range, which is typically 120 degrees. There's 2,048 oh, 2, pulses. So you ever driven an old Scalatrix uh, yeah. pistol grip? Yep, yep. All those little winds of wire. Well, that's kind of like what the servo sees. So it's a, a step. So, you know, the finer the resolution, the less steps are there are in the servo. So if you have a huge control horn, say a three-inch control horn, and the the uh, control horn on the surface itself is only an inch, um, you have to turn that servo way down to re, re, um, get the required amount of throw. So what that's doing is re reducing your resolution. Does that make sense? Yes. And and what does that mean from a from a stick movement perspective? What does that mean? Just for people that don't understand. If you move the stick an eighth of an inch and you've got a three-inch control arm, it's going to be jumpy around center. It's going to, it's going to be real hot off center. So then you, you wind in a bunch of exponential to kind of tone that down. But, but basically, you're going to have all these elbows. I call them you know, control elbows where it snatches off the expo and you get kind of a jerk and it's just not linear. You want that linear feel. So when the stick's halfway, or let's say you've got 50% up elevator, um, and it does a 200-foot loop. Well, when you pull 100% elevator, it should do a 100-foot loop. That's just in theory. That's not in practice. So that's what I call linear control. Same with roll. If you hold the stick halfway and you do um, 100 degrees per second roll rate, then you move it all the way out, and you should do 200 degrees uh, per second roll rate. So basically that's linear, and, and that's what you really should be chasing with control setup. And the only way to do that is have the mechanics. So maximum throw is maximum resolution on the servo. So when the stick's in the middle, you're getting exactly 50% of your resolution. 
So, so basically it's 2048, so it's roughly, you know, a thousand milliseconds either way off center. If you have a great big control horn, you're only going to be using 500 or 200, you know, milliseconds off center, if that makes sense. I think it's um, most of us, when we set up our models and we, we get that servo horn, we always go for the outer the outer hole, when in most cases you could probably go in the most inner hole and, and, and Well, it depends it on, the, on the application. One of the biggest challenges with the Tournament of Champions was you had to fly precision and freestyle with the same model. So you, you how do you get around that? Well, we used to change, you know, elevators. We used to put more control throw in the elevators. We, you know, you'd, we had much smaller ailerons, so we'd have a different setup. And then we change control. We do all kinds of crazy stuff, so we didn't lose our precision feel when we're flying freestyle. We'd move the CG back. We do all this kind of base, basic stuff to loosen the aircraft up to make it more agile. Um, but but then that same aircraft in that setup would be very very difficult to fly precision maneuvers. So. You know, in a 3D setup, if, if you know Jason's setup, he's just going for max throw. He's just, like I said, he's got mad skills. He can, he's just quick on the sticks. And he, you know, 3D flying is is precise, but it's not, it's not like a an IMAC or you know, S3A type maneuver where maneuver quality is absolutely you know imperative. That's true. That's true. So one of your suggestions is realistically, if you are competing in both, say, a freestyle and an iMac, um, you know, precision sequence kind of thing. You should have separate planes. Is, Correct. With separate, um, you know, different arms and, and, and different setup. Correct. Well, most, I think I think it's pretty much exclusive now. You can have a different model for freestyle. Most of the iMac events here in the US, they allow you to run a different model for freestyle. In actual fact, it's a separate event. It's not, it's not a cumulative of your scores. The scores are based on your precision. Uh, flying, not the freestyle element. So, and and a lot of the freestyle events, you know, the Freestyle World Cup, and they hold in China and, and various places. There's a big one in the UK. That's just all freestyle. So go for it. You know, big control throws. But again, getting the model dynamically set up is still important, whether you've got a lot of control throw or not. I, th I think one one of the things you raised in this article is to do with servo blowback. And and I've really been harping on this with any of my close friends know that I've been talking about this a lot, that um, I think that a lot of people underspec their servos in 3D models, that they're, they're trying to save a bit of money um, and get a servo that doesn't have the right torque, but they're also connecting that, con you know, their, their linkage up to that outer hole of their two-inch arm and what they thought was going to give them 15 kilos of torque is now giving them 10 or less because they've used that really, really long arm. And you've talked about blowback and how, you know, even in neutral flight, you've talked about snaps that – and I was talking to um, – uh, I had a guest on the, um, on the, on the show, uh, Sasha Ciccone, and Sasha Ciccone was talking about how – and he's in Europe and an IMAC champion in Europe, and he was saying how – he believes everything is won and lost based on your snaps. There's such a manoeuvre that people interpret differently yeah. and whatever. And he's, so if you've got a servo that's giving you blowback in your snaps, you're never going to get your snaps right, are you? He knows what he's talking about. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely true because start and stops are all going to be different with server blowback. So, you know, you, you said it exactly correctly. 
uh, probably thinking inches, but um, if you've got a 100-ounce servo, it's, a, it's measured 100-inch ounces. Um, I think you use uh, centimetre torque per kilo, but just for math, it's a 100-inch uh, ounce servo. You need a 1-inch arm to achieve that 100 ounces. If you put a 2-inch arm on it, you've only got 50 ounces, which is fine if you've got enough servo power, but some of these big iMac models, you know, big 40% models, they're going to, you know, run out of power pretty quick. You know, we, I've done some tests um, on on jet stabs. Uh, we did quite a lot of exclusive tests on some jet tail planes. And there's 80 pounds of force at 160 miles an hour on a tail plane on an FAT. So, you know, that's that's a lot of power that's a, that you've got to move that stab. So we work backwards from that, figuring what sort of servo we needed. So, you know, you need two 500-ounce servos to accommodate that force. So... It wouldn't surprise me that those numbers are probably 30, 40, 50 pounds of pressure on, on some ailerons. I think that that's what people forget. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine and, and saying, you know, people often say, oh, he's, yeah, he's got a 3D model, but he doesn't really fly 3D, so he won't be, he won't need that, you know, that torque in the server. And I'm like, what are you talking about? If you're flying low speed, low and slow 3D, your torque on your servos isn't that much. There's not a lot of airflow happening over those surfaces, really, to give you massive amounts of blowback. I said, what we find is that the the less experienced the pilot, the more propensity to fly faster and do high speed runs down the uh, down the strip and then pull up. I said that servo is trying to hold that control service in place whilst it's doing you know 200 kilometers per hour down the strip. You know, it's it's under it's under force. You know, even when it's flying straight and level at a reasonable speed, and so how can you just assume that oh, this person doesn't need that that torque servo? Because you know, some of these three D planes have got big barn door ailerons and things like that. And probably the most important thing is you're guarding against flutter. Yes, I mean, you know, that's that's probably where a maybe less experienced pilot might get into trouble if he's not doing three D but has big control throws. You know, he doesn't have enough holding power on those surfaces and they can flutter quite easily. And, well, that's the thing. And, and whenever we see flutter, it always happens to be sort of straight and level flight down the strip at a reasonable pace. It's never, yeah. you know, it's never really hovering the plane that we see the wings start to flutter kind of thing. And so every time I've seen flutter, it's, it's always been right in front of me, person coming down the street, strip with a high-speed pass and everyone starts yelling, yeah, flutter, slow down, landed. Flutter's a whole, like, 16 podcasts it's quite complex yeah like what caused flutter and you know there's there's ways to stop it pretty easy but you know flutter is definitely a, a big thing i've seen with with poorly set up models and the other thing is i see guys learning to do 3d and they're inspired by jason the guys to do these rifle rolls well now the blowback really comes into play and they do it slow and they they kind of timing's pretty good and they get faster and faster and all of a sudden their timing's all out of whack because the roll rate's varying as the speed varies. It's the servos holding the airline in position. Well, I'm a big believer of uh, some of those top brands have done their homework and they've they've tested the planes and had, you know, like Extreme Flight has Jace Ducia try to, you know, basically they give them a plane and go, see if you can break it, you know. And <laughs> they'll set the plane up. They know what servos to use and what torque and whatever. And it's just been proven time and time again. As I always say to people that, those good quality, you know, brands like Extreme Flight, Pilot RC, that kind of stuff. They they've done the homework. Even you know your team at Horizon, 
with Hangar 9 models and all that kind of stuff. They know what servo is going to work for that control right. service. Why doubt them? Why doubt their abilities and think, oh, well, you know, they said put a 24-kilo servo in a 60cc, but I'm going to put 15 because, you know, I don't fly like Jace. Well, you know what? Well, it's, you know, the dynamic of a neuro model, the psychographic of a neuro model is they just like to dabble and experiment and play. So, you know, you just got to let modelers be modelers. Not, you know, if you're in a competition environment, yeah, a good place to start is what the manufacturer says. I've just set up this engine in the Cobra and I'm using the Holly ECU or the base tune that I used was what Holly recommended for the engine and then I kind of tweaked it from there but I didn't just say I'll just do my own thing you know I started with what the manufacturer recommended. Yeah now the next part in this article which I think is one of the most critical things that I've learned from you is this concept of sequencing of your trimming process Right, so um, most of us will get out there and we'll trim for straight and level flight just using our trim trim tabs on the on the radio. But um, you have a different philo- a, a defined philosophy about the sequence of that trimming process. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Oh, yeah, it's kind of you know how to how to cover that in hundred words is pretty tricky, but I'll yeah. do my best. There's two parts of trimming. There's static and dynamic trimming. So static trimming is pretty easy. You do it on the bench. You balance your wings. You balance your CG. You kind of, you know, check wings as straight and correct, et cetera, et cetera. Um, then dynamic trimming is is what's happening under G loads because, you know, it's not in space. It's It's got G-forces, and that changes the dynamic balance depending on, you know, what environment you're in. So the so that's the kind of two trim topics I'll talk about. Um, the sequencing is even more important because, you know, the first thing I'll, I ask years ago, I, I'd see people and they go out and they test fly model and, and then they've, they've got the cowl off and they're putting right thrust in. That's one of the first things they're doing. Well, that's probably one of the last things you should do because right thrust can affect everything. Um, you know, the, so it's very important to start with the basics. So the, the, the basic is the, the wing weight, you know, it's like you st- statically balanced it on the bench and then now you've got to dynamically balance it. Well, how do you do that? Well, I think in my article I recommend pulling, uh, going on a straight down line and then make sure it's as vertical as you can and then just pull out and pull out in an axis so that you can see the wings. Because when you come from vertically straight down to horizontal, there's no dynamic forces other than weight. You know, there's no thrust affecting that. There's no trim affecting that, providing your roll trim's good. So as you pull out through the corner, the only thing that could cause that wing to drop is dynamic balance on the wing weight. And you just add weight accordingly, and then you do it inverted, and you kind of balance it all out. So that's just a little, you know, brief, (laughs) that's how you do wing weight. We can't, we don't have time to go through every section. But, you know, wing weights first, and then you, you start moving throughout the aircraft. As a, You know, I, I don't have the article in front of me. But, you know, you just, the sequence basically is value-add. You're not, you know, there's a cause and effect with everything. But the sequence that I've written has less cause and effect. By the time you get through the article, if you follow that sequence, the, the things that you're doing at the end won't affect the things that you've done at the start of the process. 
So for instance, adding right thrust at the ends is the better time to do it because you know your wing weight's good and you haven't got all these other things that might be fooling you as to you might be pulling out of a corner and think, oh, you know, it's right thrust. Well, right thrust can affect your downlines. If you've got too much right thrust, what happens when you're coming straight down? You've got no thrust from the engine, so it's going to kind of talk off to the left. You know, those kind of things, you know. So most people have too much right thrust or, or they do. What I used to do was run less right thrust and use an use a, uh, electronic mix so I could square it up coming straight down as, and trim it going straight up. So I'd trim for the vertical and then use an electronic mix for the downline, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, the article says here... Um, <laughs> There's an awkward silence there. No, 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 no. The article says it's very important to trim your model in the correct sequence to make sure each adjustment has no effect on the previous adjustment. There's an intentional order in which I recommend trimming a model, right? Now, I've got another chart. So in the Scale Aeros IMAC Association here in, in Australia, they've got they've summarized this trimming chart. And just to give people a bit of an understanding, if you want to get this, by the way, just go to the um, Scale Aeros website uh, to search for Scale Aeros um, and you'll find it. But the trimming setup starts with center of gravity and you, then it says maneuver to perform crosswind 45 degree upline roll inverted and then you know you've got little tick boxes to document what was happening and then you're doing your lateral balance right thrust angle up thrust angle aileron differential throttle to aileron throttle to rudder rudder to aileron rudder to elevator downline mix uh, and it has to be you know you're suggesting to follow that 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 defined process because as you said Every action is reaction, basically, and you need to get it in the right order to get your plane, uh, you know, working uh, correctly. So, good tip. And then when you've got all that done, don't go and change your propeller because then you have to start again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, you think you should get the propeller right first, then? Which do we mention that? You know, use the same. Well, propulsion. you know, there's a there's a propeller of choice usually for most aircraft or within. You know, S3A, they're sort of chasing noise and thrust and so forth. So there's a specific kind of um, propeller that's going to be kind of close to their preference. It might be from the previous model. Um, start with that and try and stick with that. You know, I used to run the same propeller for years and years and years, basically because I kind of had a feel of how to trim to that propeller. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, for instance, three-bladed props have a lot more torque effect than two-bladed props. I don't know why that is, but they do. Mm hmm Another little, this is a little kind of tidbit is, um, you know, a straight wing uh, on the bench is not going to aerodynamically fly straight because a lot of people think you have right thrust for the torque. It's not for the torque, it's called, it's for the P factor. As the air swells around the fuselage, it causes the opposite yaw. Mm. The aircraft will actually roll under torque. And, and what you'll find if you, if you fly along straight level and pull the throttle off, you'll notice the aircraft will actually start rolling to the left. So what I used to do is I used to build my wings with half a degree of twist in them to accommodate for that. Sure. These are little tiny, fine, little little inside the fence, little, little tricks that all the top <laughs> yeah. guys would use. But, you know, that's just, a, that's one of those dynamic and static balancing things. Yeah. Well, you go on in this article and talk about balance. So you say, okay, how do I know the correct CG for my model? If in doubt, read your model's instructions. That's usually a good place to start. For precision, flying forward is better, but too far forward can be a problem. Um, and same with, I think, there's been this this sort of movement, especially for 3D flyers, to move the CG quite far back. But 
I think what that rearward CG does is help in certain manoeuvres in, in sort of freestyle aerobatics, you know, hovering and things like that. But then you start to lose precision sort of the further you get back. So um, I'm not a big fan of really rearward CGs uh, personally. The rearward CG sounds really good in the, in the pubs, but, you know, you really are making life more difficult. Even in a, a kind of crazy freestyle setup, you know, two rearward, you know, when I say two rearward, I mean it's dynamically unstable in pitch. Um, it's just going to be really, really hard to fly. Um, so you've got to find where that edge is. And, you know, center of gravity is, is very much a feel thing, but really what you, the best way to set up a model for center of gravity, and this is what I've done for years, is, is you need to carry, you need to be holding a little bit of up when you're flying upright and pushing a little bit of down when you're flying inverted. And this amount should be identical. So your center of gravity will determine that to a point. Um, there are some other factors with that, but let's, we're talking precision aerobatic aeroplane, it would change with the SCAR model, of course. So, in other words, your your aircraft is kind of what I call neutrally trimmed, inverted, or upright. A lot of guys will, will fly a model that's trimmed to fly almost hands off and straight and level. When they fly inverted, they're holding a lot more down elevator. And so you can move the center of gravity back, so that'll reduce the amount of down elevator, but now they've got to fly more down trim and they start chasing it. So your center of gravity really is is get that feel upright and inverted so it's the same you don't want to roll inverted and it starts to climb you're holding up the elevator for instance i've had models like that <laughs> but um yeah center of gravity is, is probably the one of the first things that you want to get that right before you kind of get too, too far down the road because it can affect your knife edge enormously so center of gravity has a huge effect on the stream. So knife edge trim is not just knife edge. It affects its flow rolls. It affects everything. An interesting note in this article is uh, one of your tips in checking the, if you've got the correct CG. And that is you know, normally what we do is we might do a 45-degree upline and uh, invert it and see what happens with the nose. But you're saying right. that a good way to do it is to look at uh, a spin entry. So when we try to induce a spin by stalling the plane and see what happens, you know, normally it drops a wing. Uh, but you've said if when entering a spin, your model mushes and kind of slides into the spin with no real stall visible, you may be too far forward on the CG. And then, of course, you say another sign of forward is excessive down elevated needed for inverted flight. But uh, but it was interesting that, that, that comment that you made earlier about when you're in straight and level flight, you may need a little bit of up elevator uh, as well, which sort of does make sense in a kind of way because if you if you if you trim straight and level upright, and then you roll inverted, you're probably going to need more um, down elevator to keep the thing flying straight and level. So Correct. Yeah. Because you know it's, it's basically the wing has to fly at a certain angle of attack to fly. I mean. It can't, it can't maintain a loft if it's got a zero angle attack, in spite of what anyone will tell you, it's physically impossible. So you've got to hold some up elevator or you can trim it up. But as soon as you go inverted, you're going to have to push down elevator. And with most modern sequences, you spend as much time inverted as you do upright. So, you know, why have it hands off, you know, in an upright and not hands off inverted? So I just used to hold the elevator. Um, depending, you know, upright or inverted. Actually, Steve Coran told me that trick, and it makes a lot of sense. But the spin entry, 
I, you know, this article was written nearly 20 years ago um, when I was doing a lot of F3A flying. Spin entries were a really easy way to lose a lot of score. Mm, and, yeah. you know, you'd see an aircraft just kind of, the nose wasn't really very high and it just, it was just real sketchy. So I used to keep adjusting my center of gravity so I had a good, you know, good obvious stall into the spin. Both inverted and upright, center of gravity will affect it the same. So, and, and a couple of times, you know, in, 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 you know, light and variable conditions, you might end up going into a spin, you know, downwind. In fact, some of the sequences, the spin was downwind intentionally. Um, I'm sure the FAI did that intentionally. So it really forced you to do a good entry. So, yes, yeah, spin entries is where a CG will really show up if it's not right. Yeah. Now, you say also that you'd recommend at least 10 to 15 flights before making the commitment to where the CG needs to be if it's a new model. And I think, you know, you do need that 10 to 15 flights just to get accustomed to the airframe and its and its characteristics. And, you know, often we, we do a maiden flight and go, okay, everything's good. And then we start, you know, playing around with trims and mixes and things like that straight off the bat when maybe we just fly the model and really get to know it before you start making any dramatic changes. Right, right. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's probably your listeners don't want to hear this, but a, to trim a model like perfect, and they're never perfect, but you know that you're just chasing that one or two percent level. It's going to be a hundred flights. So center of gravity, you know, kind of get it close. You kind of like it, and then just kind of feel it out um, until you're really, really happy. And you can fly the model and get your control throws the way you want them, et cetera, et cetera. But in the meantime, just just don't get too crazy on the center of gravity unless it's you know obviously way out. Um, and, and then just kind of sneak up on it and look at your spin entries, look at your 45 lines, sort of see where it is. Um, the classic is a guy doesn't want to add weight. He's like, I don't want to add weight to this. So he, he convinces himself the center of gravity is okay. And the reason I say that is I used to do that. You know, we were always chasing, you know, it was like, who had the lightest model, you know? Well, the truth is I might have had the lightest model, but, I didn't have the most competitive model because it wasn't trimmed properly. So it's kind of a wash. So, you know, if you've got to add weight, you've got to add weight. It's just the way it goes. What about those people that are flying gases, petrol powered planes, and uh, where you might get a bit of a weight shift uh, as the, the fuel load diminishes? How do you, what's your recommendations around managing that? Well, a, a competition aircraft, the center of gravity and the tank should be in the same place. You know, even my scale jets, all the because the the jet fuel load is seven pounds, so it's pretty substantial. Um, and you try and put the tank as close to the center of gravity as you can. That was pretty common. Uh, you know, most modern F3A models are electric now, so they've got the joy of not having to deal with that. But I make aircraft are not, and there's plenty of room to put the tank over the, you know, center of gravity. Uh, it's just got to be close. It, you know, it doesn't have to be right on it. Um, you know, the, it's amazing how much weight you have to add to a model to actually get a physical change dynamically. Um, you know, a couple of grams, you know, an ounce or two on a 20-pound model will make no difference whatsoever. You know, you've got to add six or seven ounces to get a sort of noticeable difference. So, yeah, you know, uh, let's say it's 100 cc. Uh, petrol aircraft, um, you've probably got what, like a 32 ounce tank. Uh, so you've got a couple of pounds of fuel. As long as it's within, 
uh, you know, six or eight inches of the center of gravity, you shouldn't really see a great trim change. But if it's way up on the firewall, I'd recommend moving it back. Yeah, a lot of, I think, in, in, in larger scale sort of iMac planes, the tanks are generally sitting in front of the wing tube. Uh, that's just the way they're designed. Um, that's okay as long as it's right up near to the wing tube. The cap mm. was great. I used to fly a cap, because, and the wing tube was quite low on the fuselage. One of the reasons I like the cap is because, you know, the wing tube didn't clutter up the inside of the fuselage, so I could put the fuselage exactly where I wanted to. Yeah. Well, actually, with one of my planes, an extra uh, 30cc extra, I've actually managed to put the tank over the wing tube. Uh, yeah. And that plane is just, it's a joy to fly. You know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it, it tank is right over the CG on that. But I had to, you know, put some foam underneath to raise the, the, the height of the tank to get over over the wing tube a bit, but it, it seems to work perfectly fine. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, it's it, sometimes it's just not practical to do it. But if, if there is an opportunity to move it back, I'd recommend doing it. I mean, you know, a lot of the stuff that Chris does at Extreme Flight, he's thought of all that and he's designed around that. So um, most of any kind of competition model, they, if they've got people behind them that's helping them dial in the aircraft, they would put the, center, the tank over the correct location. Even some of the stuff we do at Horizon, um, you know, we do sort of consider the tank location quite a bit. Yeah. Now, moving on from CG, so now the, the article sort of moves on to say, okay, you're happy with the CG now. The next trim step is dynamic balance. And what you're really referring to here is the wings and the balance of the wings Correct. and the wingtip weight. Correct. Now, yep. let's see. I'm going to test your knowledge here if you can remember what you wrote, but why are the wings the main uh, thing to look at when it comes to dynamic balance? Well, it's really the only thing on an aircraft that's affected, you know, by the um, gravity. You know, if you've got um, a, a one kilo weight at zero gravity, um, it's one kilos. Well, if you start swinging that weight, the weight goes up. So it's now one and a half or two kilos, depending on how fast you swing it. Well, if you put that into a wing situation, you've got one ounce right out on the wingtip, which balances the wing statically. But as you pull through a corner, you might be pulling five Gs. Well, that one ounce is now five ounces. And therefore, it has an effect on the wing holding true or if it's going to drop or not. So you've got to figure that out by doing a lot of, and I, I know in the article I wrote, do that 50 times. I mean, just keep pushing down and pulling out until you're absolutely sure. It's going to take a long time to get that dynamic balance correct. Well, in here you say, um, you know, just because you know both the wings may weigh the same and don't carry any aileron trim doesn't mean you can't have a wing weight problem. Uh, I've correct. seen a myriad of ways to test for wing weight, trim, loops, pulling to vertical and so on. And then you say, my suggestion is to think about the sequencing argument. If you do loops or pull to a vertical upline, the engine thrust can have an effect. But we haven't trimmed out the singles yet. So see how this is you know, giving evidence as to why there is a defined sequence. So if you if you if you stand with you've got a little stick plan, I guess, for practicing your unknowns. Yep. So if you point that straight at the ground, okay, and then then go from vertical to horizontal. No matter where those wings are on that downline, it's got to go straight. 
It's a little test for everybody. Just think about it. So in other words, you're not affected by aileron trim or pulling. You know, pulling from horizontal, you might be leaning on the rudder a little bit and it might, you know, squirt it off left or right. If you go straight down, they've got no dynamic forces from the engine. It's just purely going straight down. And then when you pull to horizontal, if that wing drops, the only thing that could affect it is wing weight. That'll, that'll uh, bend your brain a little bit. But, yeah, sit down with a stick plane and just just go straight down and just, just rotate it through 90 degrees. It's always going to be level. You can rotate it 180 degrees at, in, in roll. In actual fact, that's one one of the things with iMac, if you didn't hit your your vertical rolls correctly, you were always pointing in or out, coming out of the corner. <laughs> it, was a, it was a way of changing your line without anybody seeing it, actually. Yeah, actually, gee, you can remember this article. I'm just reading it going, yeah, he's right. <laughs> it's perfect. Okay, so, yeah, you've got to check your wing weights. What about, you know, people that checking wing weights when you're on the bench? Um, you know, I know there's some sort of balancing machines that will help you do that. Is that a good way to go or is it better to do it? I mean, that's, that's, that's where you start, no doubt. I mean, if, you, if it statically balances, I mean, it's got to be close. You know, but for instance, you know, you built the wing, you might have used a little bit more glue in the center of one and a little bit more glue on the tip of the other, but the total panels kind of weigh the same because you only used an ounce of glue on each skin, let's say, but you might have two-thirds of that glue on out towards the tip on one side and two-thirds more towards the center. Well, dynamically, as that wing is loaded, it's going to have a different effect. I don't know if that makes sense. So that's why, you know, you could have, you know, the wood selection out towards the tip might be a little heavier, even though the sheet weighs the same. But if you cut that sheet up into sections, there might be, you know, six-pound balsa at the root and 10-pound balsa at the tip, even though the, the whole sheet averages out at seven-pound balsa. So, you know, this is like the finer points, but that's why static balancing is only a start. It's not the finish. And it doesn't mean if it statically balances correctly, it's going to be correct under a dynamic situation. Yeah, so you need to do, your, you do a static test and then a balance and then go on flight and do the dynamic balance and see how it actually reacts when it's in the air. And if you go way back in time, back when I first started flying aerobatics in, you know, in the late 70s and 80s, there were, you know, we used side exhaust engines and the tune pipe kind of hung off the right side of the, the fuselage. What we used to do was put our left retract mount, we'd slide it out half an inch. So we didn't add tip weight, but we just moved the retract unit and that would kind of dynamically balance out the two. This is real Formula One kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, like I said, you know, the, so many times, you know, it's like everything in life. There's, my dad used to say, the longer it takes to make the money, the longer you're going to keep it. Well, it's the same with aerobatics. The more time you spend trimming and preparing and practicing, the longer you're going to be good at it. Yeah, it was, it was interesting when I was racing cars, we used to corner weight the cars. You know, I used to get it before every race meeting, we'd put the car on scales under each wheel and yeah. and my mechanic would would do all this balancing act to make the whole thing sort of balanced and 
I can tell you now, you notice the difference. You, absolutely. You absolutely notice the difference between a car that was balanced and, and wasn't balanced. You, you'd turn it to the track. And the reason why I did it before every race meeting, some people say, oh, look, it's not going to change that much. But, you know, it could change when the, you know, when the, 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 the car's tied down on the back of the trailer and you hit a big bump, you know, and something changes, you know. So I would get it done. And sometimes we'd even do it at the track, you know, if, especially if you had a bit of a shunt and you had to replace some arms or something like that, you would put yeah. it back and, and corner weight it to make sure it was. You know, one day I remember I did have a big a big shunt. Um, my parents don't listen to this uh, podcast, <laughs> so they won't know I hit the wall. But um, we were we were literally the pl- the car got put back together just before qualifying was about to start. So I did it in practice and and. They didn't have enough time to do a corner weight or, you know, even center the steering wheel. And having the steering wheel off center going down the straight at 200 Ks was just, it just played on your mind so much. Oh, yeah. And the first yeah. thing was uh, once I got off the track and, you know, qualified probably down near the rear end, I said, okay, we've got to corner weight this thing, get this thing pointing straight and get the steering wheel straight because it's just too off-putting to know that you've got the right hand down going in a straight line. And it's the same with the model, like you were saying earlier, it's exactly the same with the model aeroplane. It's, it's, you can't yep. perform well. And, you know, one thing I want to get across to people is this is this trimming process, yes, you can get very involved when you're competing, but even for the average guy out there that might be flying an aerobatic plane as an example – that wants to give himself the best chance, at least pay some attention to the trimming and follow this chart, you know, even at a reduced level, but you're still going to be better off. So don't don't ignore the concept of setting up your planes well, especially if you if you especially I think really if you're flying aerobatics. Even you know, when you were flying gliders, would you follow these kind of processes as well? Or did you take a different approach with gliding? No, I mean there's some things that aren't relevant, but the center of gravity, um the the trim under different camber positions, yeah, a different set of numbers and and needs, but the process and this time spent was the same. Still is. I'm actually heading out uh, on Monday to a GPS racing event uh, up in North um, California, and that model is like a highly tuned racehorse. I mean, it's really like incredibly efficient, but you know, it's spent hundreds of hours not hundreds maybe 20 hours just dialing that in and that's a glider i mean it's crazy yeah that's a beautiful glider too by the way i saw photos of that the other day and i think oh gee that's big wingspan too what's the wingspan on that glider it's uh it's just shy of nine meters yeah that's big actually <laughs> a side note what is this gps racing all about how does it work well simply you've got uh you've got a it's about two kilometer triangle. Um, it's not quite two kilometers, but it's it's uh, it's not an equilateral triangle. So the the upwind legs are a little shorter, just so you visually can see the model okay. So you race around this triangle, and the turn points are determined by the GPS. So we use the same software as a full size sailplane uses, and you just listen to a tone, and then when you hear the tone you turn and that's basically how it goes and then you've you've got 30 minutes um a window to get as many laps as you can in that 30 minutes and the launch height is 500 meters so the world record is 21 laps which is averaging about 130 k's the whole 30 minutes how do you get how do you launch it to that height oh we got a tow okay yeah 
There's two classes. There's the SLS class, which is the self-launching sailplane. They have electric motors, which you know fold up or they're folding props on the nose. And then there's the pure aerotow, which is the scale class, and they're aerotowed up. And you've got like a 30-minute working time, so you've got 30 minutes to launch the group, and you're basically racing each other. You know, that's pretty cool. No, that sounds good. Okay, moving away from gliders because uh, I don't think they're going to pay any attention to this next point, which is thrust angles. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, uh, you go on to say, okay, guys, it's time to put aside aesthetics and, and get that thrust correct. I, sh- I sure see a lot of spinners perfectly lining up to the cow these days. One of the biggest deterrents to adjusting for the correct thrust angle is once the plane is built and you make an adjustment, the spinner won't line up anymore. Uh, okay. I say that from personal experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then, then you go on to say setting up the correct thrust angle is fairly simple. Well, it's simple to identify, harder to adjust. Now that we know our wingtip weight is correct, we should be able to, with confidence, pull to some accurate vertical uplines. Now, take us from there. Yeah, so now we go from horizontal to vertical. It's the only way you can truly test the thrust. And the thrust will have um, more effect as the aircraft slows. So if you've got a high-powered aircraft, um, the thrust is not going to show up as much as if you've got a lesser-powered aircraft. Again, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, I mean, we we thought we had a lot of power, but we had not enough most of the time. (laughs) So we'd really get loaded up at the top of a long vertical. Uh, except for Eddie. Eddie always had like 10 times more power than everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I've seen his planes fly. Eddie had his planes So, so basically, yeah, as you pull to a vertical um, and the aircraft sort of slows slightly, the thrust effect will take will start to um, have an effect. And you can have too much. Most of the time, people err on not enough. And it's pretty simple what the aircraft will do. It'll start just yawing off to the left. Um and that's it, it's it's I call it the thrust angle, but it's not thrust that's causing the yaw. It's the p factor, which is a term used for the slipstream of the propeller um, that is hitting the fuselage. That's why a lot of the the Europeans now are using condor rotating propellers to remove the p factor. They have no right thrust, which is pretty innovative. Um, but um, not many IMAC planes are like that. So basically, you just um, Trim the aircraft in the vertical with rudder, okay? So you just keep adding rudder until it goes dead straight up and be absolutely sure. And then what I tell people, whatever rudder deflection you've got, halve that, and that's pretty close to how much right thrust you're going to have to add. So if you've got two degrees of rudder deflection, you add one degree of right thrust. That, oh, I never thought of, I've got I've got one plane that, Every time I pull vertical, it, it actually cocks to the right. Ah, too much right thrust. Right, and yep. I know, I know. Ever since I've, I love the, I love the model. It flies well, except I always know, and I always compensate with rudder. I go, ah, oh, stuff it. I'll just compensate with rudder as I'm flying vertically. But then I think probably should just fix this up properly. One of one of the important things checking for right thrust is you've got to you've got to fly like from behind you sort of right over the top of your head. So you might have to stand out in the middle of the flying field or, you know, um, because you've got, to, you've got to be absolutely certain those wings are level. If those wings aren't level, it's going to go left or right. Yes, that's the other thing. So you've got to have a good perspective of what wings level are. That's why I recommend doing it many, many, many times and look for a pattern. If it goes left and right, then 
it may not be right for us. It may be just that you don't have the wings level. So yeah, you say in in your article, you say what I like to do is fly directly overhead into the wind where I can clearly see my wings, then pull to a vertical upline. Okay, up we go. First 100 feet is good. Next 100 feet is good. Moving through 500, still tracking well, up over 1,000, now still straight. If you're working at it, the best you can hope for is around 1,000 or so feet, plenty for most figures. So Yeah, I'm 300 meters. Yeah, I'm just getting this, this picture in my mind of how you're standing. You've got, yeah, you're, you're standing facing the model and you've pulled vertical into the wind. Correct. Into yeah. the wind's critical for obvious reasons. If you've got a crosswind, it's going to have an a, effect on the, not so much the thrust, but the crab angle might throw you off. So it's better to get directly into the wind, upwind or downwind. You could you could pull up downwind. And actually, downwind kind of exaggerates thrust even more. So yeah. Now, um, just just you raised the thought in my mind when you mentioned weather. When it comes to trimming a model. Is it better to trim the model in sort of zero wind conditions? Is that is that preferred, or you know, which is uh, hard yes. to do? But yes, it's kind of common sense. But you know, obviously, if you've got turbulence and gusts, it's going to camouflage what you're really trying to see. So, um, it, you know, steady wind's fine. It, it's more turbulence and thermal activity. So, the thermals can you could be have one wing and half of the thermal, and it's going to screw you up pretty badly. In actual fact, that used to drive me nuts. In the middle of a summer in Australia at an event, you'd, you'd just about be ready to pull up and you'd hit this great big thermal and your wings would kind of talk off. So, yeah, early in the morning, late in the evening is a good time to trim. Yeah. Uh, you go on to say speed will have a huge effect on thrust angle on a vertical upline. Entry speed compared to speed under load after climbing to, say, 100 feet will be as much as 30 to 40 miles per hour slower. My goal is to trim as best I can for the first 1,000 feet, which, you know, realistically, that's all we really need. Yeah, I mean, the, before you do it, let's say you're doing something on an upline, you want to have it pretty square before you do that something because if it's a snap roll or whatever, you know, <laughs> unless you hit it absolutely perfect, you're going to have to correct after that anyway. So, you know, I used to tell people, just get it as good as you can until you have to do something on the upline. Yeah. Now, the, the last thing you want to do is go and compensate with the rudder trim, do you? You've got need to get in there and just move that thrust angle. Yeah, well, you, you can trim with rudder, but it's going to affect your up and down lines. So, um, you know, you use the rudder as a, as a tool to figure out how much right thrust you need to have. Um, one of the most important things is everyone trims for going straight up, but they don't trim for coming straight down. And, you know, if you've got your, if you've got it so it'll go to 5,000 feet and keep holding square, you've probably got too much right thrust. So when you come down, you've got no thrust from the engine so it's going to talk back the other way because you've got this engine all cranked cranked over so um i got to get this right in my head if you got right thrust then you're going to come down it's going to yaw to the left coming back down so i used to mix a little bit of rudder on the downline on low throttle to sort of square it up you know so it didn't sort of you know side slip on the downline and you'll see that if you go out and actually look for it you go ah oh, okay i see that now mm-hmm now, the next point moving on from thrust is differential, aileron differential, which is always an interesting concept, and I always get quite confused with it, so I hope you can clear it up for me. Firstly, <laughs> what is it and when do you need it? Well, well, what's happening in differential is is you've got, you know, two control surfaces, um, and, you know, one's going up, one's going down, 
the 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 one going down might be lifting more than the one going up. It, they're either lift, you know, it's causing a roll effect. It doesn't matter um, if they both went down; it would create lift parallel, but they're up and down, so it's causing a roll effect. Well, if one side's working harder than the other, it will cause the aircraft to roll or to walk off axis with continuous rolls. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if you come along and, and hands off, you pull to 45 and you do three rolls consecutively and you notice it's sort of starting to slide off to the left when you did a right roll, for instance. Well, that's, that's because you've got um, one surface moving more than the other, um, creating more drag. Um, and what happens is the aileron... The upgoing aileron creates more drag than lift, and it has a yawing effect, like a spoiler. If you just had a spoiler coming up on one side, uh, like an uh, F-14, that's how they roll the aircraft, is they just raise the spoiler up on one side. It causes a yaw effect as well as a roll effect. So a way to trim for that is you just increase the upgoing aileron on, on, on whichever side. So as I say in the article, if you roll right, and the aircraft sort of walks to the left, um, you need to increase the upgoing aileron. If you roll right and the aircraft goes to the right, you need to increase or decrease the upgoing aileron. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and does it make a difference um, where the, the wing is positioned, whether it's a high wing, a high, yes. uh, mid wing, a low wing? Yes, it does. Typically, low-wing aircraft require left differential, and it's in relation to the thrust line. So high and low-wing, when I talk about high and low-wing, I'm talking about in relation to the thrust line. For example, if it's a Piper Cub, the wing's very, very, very high. So you're going to need a lot of differential on a Piper Cub. Um, Differential meaning, you know, the upgoing aileron is going up considerably more than the downgoing aileron. Um, the lower the wing, the less differential you need. So you need less upgoing aileron. Um, in some cases, you need uh, more downgoing aileron in extreme cases. Okay. Uh, good. Now, mixing. All our <laughs> modern radios allow us to have all these electronic mixes, and, and we know that uh, often we'll get in there and do knife-edge mixes and things like that. Now, um, I think I make reference to doing the mixing the very, very last thing you do. You do. You say you will notice this topic is the last in the sequence, but for many, it's where they go first. And I've been at fault at that going, oh, look, my knife edge mix is out. I better go and put a mix in. Uh, But the last 45 minutes of conversation (laughs) will will affect your knife edge mix. Exactly. Exactly. Especially like CG changes dramatically can change that knife edge mix, and you know you got to get that. The biggest right. effect on knife edge on knife edge mm-hmm. is center of gravity. Yeah, one of the biggest effects on it is center of gravity. Like in in when I say biggest effects in having the aircraft track absolutely square on knife edge, like ninety degrees, and that affects everything. I mean, it's everyone just thinks knife edge. Well, with a slow roll, if you're doing a slow roll. And, and the aircraft is, um, say, pitching towards the belly and you're rolling towards the belly, the, the, all of a sudden that roll is going to start coming in on you and you have to kind of chase it out. So you've got it. That's why that knife edge trim is so critical to get that correct. 
Hmm. Well, unfortunately, nowadays it's getting easier to do some of these mixes live whilst you're whilst you're flying. I know with my um, Spectrum DX18 QQ model that yeah, I've got to go in there, change the mix, take off, check it, change the mix again. But now with these these newer radios, you basically can set it up so that you just press a hold position or something like that to um and to, to that, log what it, what it needs to be that's a that's a great feature but as long as you do it at the end of the tuning process and you know i understand it and i'm guilty of it myself at times is you just want to get the thing knife edging perfect before you do with all that other boring stuff but i can assure you if you do all the other boring stuff first You'll need very little to no knife heads mixing, and the aircraft will be just a gem to fly. Yeah. So you go on and talk about throttle to aileron mixing. Uh, yeah. And throttle to well, rudder that's mixing. Well, that's a dynamic situation where you, and you can easily see that if you fly along straight and level, pull the power off, and you notice the aircraft sort of slides, slides typically a roll off to the left. Um, you just you can put a little bit of right aileron on low throttle. And that'll also square up your downlines. The same with down elevator. If you look at the side of the model coming straight down, you notice it's pulling out of the out of the uh, the vertical. Just mix a little bit of down elevator in on the downline. Hmm. This is going to drive you crazy next time you fly your model. You're going to oh, see all this stuff. Well, uh, I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now that realistically, the best way to trim a model is to have someone standing with you that can document it helps. what's going on. Like you, what you can do, and what I used to do, Caroline and I would go out, and I'd make comments and she'd take notes. Um, if you've got a recorder, you can do it that way as well. Yeah, no, that I think it just makes a lot of sense to have someone there to say, okay, just take this note, uh, downwind, down, you know, pulling to the right on a downline, you know, and then you can review your notes later. And then, you know, and look, look, it can be fun. You can help your, your buddy out as well with their model um, and I, just chip away. To, uh, you know, in more recent years when I was trimming my Top Gun jet, actually, my Hawk, um, I just had my earbuds in and I had my iPhone hooked up and I just, you know, called myself and I just made a phone call the whole flight and just talked through what I was seeing and what I was doing and then I'd review the notes after the day's practice. Yeah, because I'm always... You know, if if I if I'm trying to trim a plane, you know, say if I'm doing a knife edge mix, that's the only thing I can think about. And and sometimes I land and go, now what was I just thinking again? What which way was it pulling? Was it pulling to the canopy or was it pulling to the the, to the wheels or? And 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 often like even with knife edge mixing, I I mix in both directions because I find that you know in different directions sometimes um it will uh, it will change and yeah I need someone there to take notes. Well, and the other thing and and this is you know. If I sort of dating myself here, but if I went back to when I first started playing aerobatics, you also get a roll effect with rudder as well. So you you put it on its side, you notice it's rolling out of the out of the uh, knife edge, or it's rolling into the knife edge, which was more rare. But typically, you put it on its side and it start rolling back to flat again. Yeah. And typically, what that meant was um, you needed to increase your dihedral. So we used to saw the wing, and uh, <laughs> then. Five minute epoxy it back together and go and fly it again. That's all. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And that's actually, Eddie and I both talked about that years ago. How we used to do that, and then when computers came out, well, you just you know put a little bit of aileron in with the rudder. Yeah, and you don't. I don't think we we see that that commitment to trimming 
that you used to go through back in those days now with all these modern composite models and things like that. Nobody's about to go and chop their wing off. I have heard of guys building their own wings for iMac planes to make them lighter, you know, especially in some of the composite models. I go and build a, a foam core wing or, and things like that. But, uh, you know, I think uh, you guys back then paved the way for, for you know, and, and really well, it's like, did all the it's thinking like for us. Nothing's changed. It's just how you solve the problem is different. It's like, you know, I was uh, my educator background is marketing and graphic design. Well, when I started graphic design, you used pens and 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 now you use a computer. But I'm still a graphic designer. You know, the the terminology and the logic and the process is exactly the same. It's the same setting up a race car. You know, you, you sit down. You know, back in the 80s, my dad used to build race engines, and we'd set up a Formula 5000 car with string and you know, adjusting wrenches and measuring and rulers, and now you just put it on the machine and it, it tells you what you need. But the process is the same and the needs the same and the dynamics are the same. Mm. So using the, the computer is a great thing, you know, and the radios. But it, if you don't understand what you're doing, then you can get way out in the weeds. Well, I think one of the challenges that we have in the era modeling fraternity is that there are so many experts in quotation marks that you go to your local field and you could ask 10 people the same question they'll give you 10 different answers and they're convinced that they are right and i've always taken the approach that i'm actually going to consult people that have competed or or worked at a you know at a different level than the average punter that's really dedicated themselves to understanding how the model flies whatever to get advice from them uh and and you're one of those guys that you know you you've documented this trimming chart uh, and it makes sense and uh, it's it seems it seems very very logical process to to follow uh, and that's why that's why I've got you on the podcast of course and not the the local self proclaimed expert at the at the uh, at the field but I think there's a lot of misinformation that gets spread around from any, anything from tuning model engines setting up planes choosing propellers choosing servos. It's just a lot of people spruiking what they've experienced, but what they've experienced can be sometimes very, very limited and not applied to other people. But uh... well, I guess to respond to that, it's it's you know I I have trouble considering myself an expert, but let's say it's because of doing a long time. I have a broader knowledge base. Um, when you're seeking advice, you've got to start somewhere. You can't just know everything and not have done it. You know, you, you, there's got to be a starting point. So, you know, what's your starting point? Well, you know, when I was building the Cobra, I asked Juan, you know, what do you do? He says, run a lot of caster. You want a, you know, a fair bit of recamber, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I did what he said. I mean, he, he knows more than I do. And that's the start. It's the same with that trimming article. It's not, it's not that I'm saying if you don't do this, you're doomed, but it's a starting point, you know. And if you want to modify or, or have variations of that or a different way, to get the same result, that's fine. I'm totally for that, you know. But it's just a place to start, you know. I think the this is the value of competition. There's, there's, it's amazing how many people in our hobby think that, you know, I've been I was a member of a club and they hated competitions. If anybody was competing in anything, they'd kick them out of the club because they thought that it was it ruined clubs when people started competing. And I look at it from the from the, the point of view that competition breeds excellence. And if you want to, you know, enjoy your hobby more, if you want to be more knowledgeable, if you really want to get involved with setup of aircraft, you have to go to those people that were 
trying to get a competitive advantage through better setup of their plane and things like that. And without that competition, whether it be even scale competition, that these scale guys really have worked out how to make scale models and, and put detail into their plane that none of us can even think about how to do it. They've worked it out. So if you really want to you know, make your plane look really nice with some scale detail, go and speak to those guys because they know, they know how to do it. That's uh, what I did. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's and that's and there's nothing wrong with that. We're like that's how we pass it on, and we the hobby just keeps on progressing, and 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 you know we get better at what we're doing in a kind of way. Not saying that everybody wants to do that because the majority of people I think just enjoy turning up and having a trundle around, flying a few circuits. But people like myself, you know, th- that I enjoy personally, I enjoy the challenge of attaining the skill and getting better at, at what I'm doing. That I and I was talking to a friend about this last night. I said, you might see me sometimes and I'm standing there by myself on the flight line and I'm, I'm shaking my head and I'm shaking my head at myself for stuffing up that role because that's not how I want to fly. You know, that I'm, I'm, very, I'm very critical of my own, um, you know, flying performance. And some people say, oh, that looked really good. And I say, no, it wasn't. Did you see that role? And I mucked up the, the last half of the role, skewed off and I had to bail out. I said, that's not what I want to do. That, that disappoints me. And so I've got to go out and keep on practicing. And and part of that process is also just attaining knowledge from other people on what I should be doing or how I should approach practice and things like that. That's why I love doing this podcast. I get to speak to people and say, so tell me, how do you do this? <laughs> and, and, and that's what a lot of people say. Though. They, they, I get comments about the podcast and they enjoy listening to it. And so... And this is going to be a good well, one of the you know couple of points that I'll make on what you just said that competition you know I I'm not really competing anything much anymore. I enjoy just flying socially. Um, the whole trimming thing is not a competition thing. I think people think you only have to go to this sort of trouble if you're flying competition. Well, it's going to give you the most benefit in a competition. But just any model, you know, if if you're out just a regular Sunday flyer, this will help you have a better experience you know trimming a model you know to whatever level you want is is, if compared to no trim at all just just hacking it around you know you're gonna have a variation in your in your experience because some days you might be on a little bit more you get a good night's sleep and you're kind of dealing with other days you know you're just not yourself and you're getting task overloaded and it's it's harder to land if the model's trimmed properly it's just going to reduce your workload you know, it's it's just super important. And, and another thing on the competition side, you, you kind of touched on a very good point. You know, self-awareness is the biggest gift and curse that prevents people from growing or helps people from growing in the competition environment. And you've either got to be very good self-analysis or have someone that's not afraid to tell you how it is. I, I work, I don't know if you know John Payne, um, we call him Edward Scissorhands, but... Uh, John was my coach, caller, still good friends. We call each other once a month. He would not sugarcoat it for me. If it wasn't good, he would tell me almost obnoxiously. But I needed that because I always wanted to hear good news. You know, that's just my nature. Um, and it was hard for me to hear that, you know, that role looked terrible or, you know, that flight wasn't as good as I've seen you do. That was a common, common comment from John. And, you know, you really kind of knew it deep down in your soul that you've done better, but you were hoping someone would say it was a good flight. But the truth is, because I had John helping me and, you know, we worked together for many, many, many years, you know, I just got better because I was just trying to please John all the time because he was a hard judge. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm helping a young guy out with um, his freestyle routines, and um, and he, he's a great guy, and he and he's he's, he's getting ahead. He's, he's doing okay. But I was had a chat with him a few weeks ago, and I said, "Do you just want to be average, or do you want to be really good? Do you want to be like world class, or do you just want to be you know?" Because oh, I want to be really good. I said, "Okay." So that means we have to pay attention to all the little detail and that we have to raise the bar of what we think is acceptable. And so you're going to get lots of people come up and say, gee, you're a great pilot. But I look at your flight and I go, you deviated off your line almost every manoeuvre. You weren't exiting manoeuvres with wings level. Uh, you weren't flying to the music. Uh, there was a lull in this uh, thing that we I said, I'm going to be critical with you and really pick on what you're doing for the sake of getting you to improve. Whereas these other people sit there going, oh, you're doing a really good job. You know, oh, it looks great. But they're not looking at it the same eyes that I'm looking at, which is you want to be really good. So you've got to improve your precision. You've got to get the plane lower in certain things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you go on at the very, very, this last paragraph, and I want to read it out, is, is, is a good one that you wrote in this article, which is, finally, many people ask me this question, what's the best thing they can spend their money and or time on to improve the result at events, et cetera? Should I get a more powerful engine, a better aircraft? What style sh- What style should I fly? And so on. The simple truth is all of these things are important, but the best thing you can spend your money on is gasoline and oil. Practice. Correct. Try to avoid letting your ego be your only motivation. Be objective, be humble, listen, watch, and experiment. That's what all the TOC and Masters pilots do. All right? That to me sums it all up. That the having now this, I think, is going to be the fifty seventh episode of this podcast, and having spoken to a lot of you know, great pilots and champions in their own right, the number one thing that they all did was practice, practice, practice. Not go and buy yep. more airplanes. Practice, practice, practice. I actually wrote an article. I'll see if I can find it for you on making your practice. You know more powerful or something. I can't remember the yes. topic. Yes, oh, that'd be great. Yes. There was a, I wrote an article just on that topic because, you know, there's practice and there's practice. So, you know, you've got to make your practice valuable. I used to, you know, for, for example, Caroline would stand underneath my model with flags and and she would she would hold a flag up when my wings were down because it's very difficult to, to get a perspective on what wings level were. We do it at kind of our base height, our mid height, and our high altitude height. And we used, to, we used to video, just recently, like to the last Top Gun I flew in, I videoed my flights, and mm-hmm. I'd sit down and watch them on the television, and I'd look at, ah, that, that was a little slow, it sunk a little. You, you don't see this stuff when you're flying the aircraft. You know, you, you, you're flying the aircraft, your brain's pretty much taxed just controlling the aircraft. You don't have a lot of capacity to take in that kind of data so you've got to come back after the day's practice and look if you've got a way to record it or make notes of what's going or have a buddy that's making notes and then come back and then work on that stuff because typically we tend to gravitate towards the stuff we like to do and we don't want to do stuff that we don't like to do yeah because uh, practice can be boring practicing roles up and down the oh, street for the whole thing can be and people sit there saying what are you doing and i think part of that that thing is when you're at, you know a flying club and there's onlookers that you feel compelled to, you know, put on a show or don't don't make it look too boring, but you've got to be able to fight that urge to say, well, I'm just actually practicing this maneuver to master it, you know. The- yeah, that that may be a good follow up uh, discussion. I'll I'll have to dig that article out, but I I wrote quite extensively on how to you know make your practice more beneficial. You know, right from getting the model reliable. That's a classic. They drive an hour to the field and the model wouldn't run. <laughs> yeah. 
stuff like that. But all all these people, you know, and I've listened to most of your podcasts. I do a lot of driving and I, I just start listening to your podcasts. They're all, all really good. But they all have one thing in common. Um, is is the amount of time they spend in the air. There's nobody that's got to a high level just by being born with the gift of flight. And Jace, Jace, we mentioned a few times, he flies a lot. I mean, he just flies a lot. Ali flies a lot. Anybody that you know or has a name in the industry flies a lot. Well, I think nowadays with the advent of simulators as well, it gives us that opportunity to do part of our practice you know, at home, like, you know, I was on the simulator with a couple of buddies last night and I was practicing just knife edge flight, knife edge circuits and things like that. And what I'm trying to do is get the muscle memory going so that when I go to the field, I can practice it and my muscles ought to instinctively know what to do, uh, you know, when I'm flying that circuit. So, and, and often people say, oh, but the simulator is not the same thing. But as another friend of mine used to always say that your brain doesn't know the difference. Your muscles and your nerve endings are doing exactly the same thing as the real thing. It's just airspace management is, I suppose, the biggest difference and the, and the different elements that we have to contend with in, in, in real life. But, you know, a knife, edge, a knife edge pass on the simulator, stick movement-wise, is pretty much the same as what we're doing in, in real life. And and so I, I – um, and, I, and, I, and the proof is in the pudding, I, as I said to a friend last night. Why is it that if I have a good week on the simulator and on the weekend I go to the field, I fly better? Yeah, it's, it's all true. So little little inside um, knowledge here. I uh, can't remember which world champion. It might have been one of the tournament champions. I saw a sporting psychologist, mm. and, and she kind of talked me through a few things. But one of the things that stuck in my mind was she said it only takes, and she, she used the term in flight, she said it only probably takes – 10, 20 flights for you to do that perfect roll. You know, we, we talked about a slow roll. She wasn't a pilot, but she kind of understood what I was doing. She said the other thousands of flights that you're doing is to build your confidence. So, you know, the, the muscle memory comes pretty quick, um, but to retain that, it comes from your confidence level. So I guess in summary, what I meant was the simulator is building your confidence. Yes, yeah, it's a bit like foam aircraft. Why is it that we fly yeah. a foam aircraft different to a balsa plane or a composite plane? Because our exactly. brain yeah. is just going, oh, it's only a foam, you'll probably bounce, and if it, if it broke, we'll just... The emotional depth is a lot lower. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, Peter, we've come to the end. We've at the end of the article, and this has honestly been one of my favourite podcasts because we got down and dirty into the nitty-gritty of hearing from the master about how to trim an article, and, you know... To me, it's an extremely logical process. It just you get that oh yeah moment, which means something's right. That you know we have to do this. Yes, you've got to be committed to going through the process and taking that time. That's why I suggest doing it with a buddy, and do you know help each other with with you know each other's plane, um, and you know document it, make those changes, and play around with it. Commit to it, and especially if you're flying iMac, um, aerobatics, F three A, that kind of stuff. It's really important to do this stuff. So a big thank you, Peter, once again for joining me and going through your world-famous now Peter Goldsmith trimming chart. Well, it's kind of helpful because I'm like an old computer that you got in the 90s. It's kind of full, <laughs> my brain. So it's good to kind of offload some of this stuff because it clears more space for the well, new learning. I'm <laughs> but do, do you know what I always say, though, as well? That there's certain people in the world that have committed a lot of time in thinking 
about things such as, you know, uh, a model engine or, or like in your case, trimming, that it's very hard to find people that go to that effort. And we need to preserve that. It's almost like it becomes part of the sound archives that, you know, I used to have um, the man Brian Winch, Winch who used to do all the yeah. engine reviews. Yeah. And he was, there was Brian's no- Brian's a really good engine guy. Uh, yeah. And, and there was nobody else in the world that uh, would go to the extent that he would to review engines. And he knew it was his hobby was pulling apart these engines right. and having a look at them. Now, when he passed away, I was sitting there saying to myself, what a great guy. And he's contributed so much to our hobby. And I was happy that when I had my magazine, he was there from the start to the end. And right. he wrote articles. And what I did was combine all those articles in PDF format and gave them out to the world for free. Here is a guy that is just he, – because he shared his knowledge on oils, on tuning, on all sorts of different things that related to engines. And we have this sort of little Bible now that Brian has left us through his writings. And it's the same with this trimming chart because this is not going to go away, this trimming chart. This this trimming an aircraft in 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years will be exactly the same as what you've documented in this. It's going to be Well, that's one of the reasons I wrote it. It actually was – the catalyst for it was I was – I was um, they have contestant judging in the US and I was, I was at uh, was a nine, 2001 – U.S. National Championships for IMAC, and Mike McConville and I were sitting down um, judging the lower, the advanced class, I think it was, and we were both really impressed with the skill of the pilots, and we both were really impressed how they could fly a obviously not well-trimmed model really well, and uh, you, you know, we I thought to myself, you know, these these kids, they went. You know, they're kind of younger, in their 20s and maybe 30s. Um, they don't know how to trim a model. It was obvious. They wouldn't deal with that if they knew how to fix it. So you know, I got talked to a guy that was writing for um, model aviation in the U.S., Mike Hurley, and I said, you know what? He challenged me because I said to him, man, these guys don't know how to trim a model. And he's like, I know. You should write an article about that. So mm. that's how it all came about. So it could be retained and used years to come yeah well i'm glad you did that and a big thank you for doing that for all of us as well just one thing i just thought of do you think that uh you know advance advancements in gyro technology and things like that may do away with the whole concept of trimming no i mean i've got it's probably more time using gyros than most people i started using them in 92 and um most people don't realize this, but you could use gyros at the tournament, and many did. Oh, really? And all the gyro does is remove the wind. Everything else is the same. So it's just like flying in a calm day all the time. That's all the gyro does. It's like driving down a, a really rough road with nice suspension. You know, you don't feel the bumps. But if the road's really smooth, you don't need nice suspension. Does that make sense? Yeah, true. So all a gyro is is like suspension for your aircraft. It doesn't matter whether it's a Piper Carb or a Jet or a World War One or whatever. It just removes the wind. And people get all spun up about gyros and it's cheating and it doesn't. They, they don't do anything but remove the gusts, which you can't see anyway. You, you can only react to a gust. You know, I don't know how many miles I've seen torn up on landing because a gust caught him out or whatever, or Jara will just fly right through that all correctly. Well, remember that when uh, Seth Arnold, I think, won the XFC? And it was yep. found out oh, yeah, there's a, a big about that. Oh, yeah. 
there was yeah everybody was up in arms and oh they should be well it, it really was just a it was actually pretty clever on Seth's, Seth's behalf because it, it didn't say you couldn't use gyros hmm. the rules you know, we I was very close to all that and the rules you know the ultimate competitor looks for loopholes in the rules you, you've raced cars I mean that's what it's all about finding loopholes in the rules talk to any Formula One team any NASCAR hmm. team they're all for loopholes in the rules this was a loopholes in the rules whether it be you know not the proper thing or whatever it's a you know it's a competition so you you do the best you can in the competition so yeah and then after that they said okay you can't use gyros which is crazy because the first time you buy a model now from horizon it's full of gyros so the basically the the it, the gyros make the flight experience so much better for the newcomer so he progresses up and then he starts competing in these these events say, oh, you can't use gyros. He's like, well, I've been using gyros since my first flight. Why can't I use them now? You know, I, so I, think, I think that's where the technology over time will start to infiltrate everything. That I think so. We're seeing with Horizon coming out with, you know, the ASRX systems in their, in their receivers that, you know, that's what we're going to get. You're going to buy a, you're going to buy a receiver and it's going to have a gyro already in, in built into it. And then you've got that whole forward programming ability now with a lot of the radios where you can, you know, adjust your gyros and, um, I had a guy, um, Australian company, Boomer RC, who were yep. developing their smooth flight systems and and taking a slightly different approach towards how their gyros work with you know automatic adjustable gain that you know the gyro works at what gain levels to use you know for different aspects of flight and uh, that's what we're seeing a lot of gyros in the jet community, especially in the. I'm probably jets. gonna I'm gonna probably throw Rick and Brendan under the bus here, but I was sitting in in a in a restaurant in Top Gun in Florida talking to Rick and Brendan and they were adamant that, you know, they didn't need gyros, gyros were not for them and, you know, they didn't see the value and <laughs> now they're kind of leading the charge with gyro technology because like true. everybody, once you use a gyro, I've never seen anybody say, I'm not going to use a gyro now. You know, they still get it. You know, it's, a, it's it, in the high, high-end 3D IMAX, DI, I, I'm not sure a gyro is going to be hugely beneficial, but in just about every other application, they make a big difference in your flight experience. Well, I think for me, and I've publicly said this, Peter, and I'm not going to slag your previous employer, Horizon Hobby, too much, but out of the box, some of the AS3X um, systems, for me, are too invasive. There's, you know, but I can adjust that. You know, with the adjustability using their app or now the forward programming, I can dial back the gains right. suit my flying style because when I, you know, I've got this night radiant glider and, you know, when I push, when I want to sort of get the nose down kind of thing, I've got to push and hold it to overwrite the, 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 the gyro system that it's probably a bit too invasive for me. So I dial, I dial things back. And, and when I do that, then it comes back to where I want that level of control kind of thing. But I'll give you an example. I've got a, um, a little UMX timber, uh, little foamy, yeah. and yeah. you yeah. cannot fly that plane effectively without the gyro. Like you can, and it's got to be dead calm conditions. But I've flown this little thing in a bit of a breeze, and it is rock solid, absolutely. Right. I've got the gyro on a switch; I can turn it off, and it's like, nah, I need to have that on. And it's like <laughs> this flies beautifully now, and that's perfect—a perfect, perfect example of how the gyro can work. Um, in that system. Well, a well set up gyro, you shouldn't ever feel it. If you flew any of my models, you wouldn't ever feel the gyro. That's the thing. Yeah, you don't want to have. And it to it's the a point tuning device. It's 
it's a tuning it's a trimming device i mean you've got to set up a jar a poorly set up gyro is probably going to make life worse mm. than a well set up gyro so well peter thank you once again we've gone on for quite a while now i'm sure everybody's enjoyed that chat uh, all the best. Congratulations for becoming a grandfather as well and, and getting, yep. getting that cobra on the road as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping you get to the US and uh, we can we can do a few laps around the neighborhood. In oh, it. that'd be awesome. No, I'd love to come with a bit of flying, play with some cars and stuff like that. It'd be great. Yeah, we got, we've got Eli Field is literally about uh, one and a half k's from my house. So we can do some flying there and drive the car. We have a good old time. I oh, know. Well, uh, I'll see you in about, what, what year are we in now? 2021, the way things are yeah. going in the world. Uh, Hopefully you guys can come out from underneath the, the box there and get out back yeah, out and see the world. We'll get there. They're talking about opening things up. So uh, we'll get there in the good. next few years, I'd say. So big thank you once again, uh, Peter, and all the best. All right. You take care, Andrew. About to leave. Already packing, come with me, I'm not really asking, we'll get away to a place where we don't know. I always love having a chat with Peter Goldsmith and a big thank you to him for joining me once again all the way from the US. He's a true Aussie at heart, he loves uh, connecting with the Aussie audience. Uh, the good thing about Peter is he just knows a lot, you know, he's, he, he's been committed to the hobby for a, a very long period of time and, and has you know competed at the top level so really knows his stuff um, over many years of all sorts of different you know whether it be gliders or aerobatics so I really enjoy having Peter on and even after our chat we had a chat off air and we've got another topic that I want to bring him back on to have a chat chat with us all about uh, so that will be coming right, not shortly but down the track we'll get Peter back on uh, and always looking forward to having another chat with Peter. So thank you once again, Peter Goldsmith, and thanks to everybody else for joining in and listening to this podcast. I hope you are enjoying it. Uh, that's why I do it, to just give you something to listen to, to fill in that week of aero modeling when you're not down at the field. If you're in the shed building, we'll keep on going. Uh, but look, don't forget, Flat Out RC is not just about the podcast. We've got the YouTube channel, so jump over to YouTube, search for Flat Out RC, subscribe, check out the videos that are there. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook. They're sort of the key platforms that I'm working on. So I would love to have you join us over there as well. So don't forget to subscribe to everything, this podcast and all those other channels as well. We'll be back next week, coming back to a, a local, a local here in Melbourne, Australia. But till then, enjoy yourselves. Hope you're getting out flying. Hope you're in the shed building some model aeroplanes. Hope you're just enjoying aeromodeling. Talk to you then. <laughs>